The Triathlon Show 338. What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Michael Lieberson. Michael is a Toronto-based triathlon coach, bike fitter and aero tester and he's the host of the Endurance Innovation Podcast. In this episode Michael explains what gains can be made by upgrading from a road bike to a time trial bike and also how things like the type of course and terrain can impact your choice of bike and the choice of your bike setup and configurations including things like use of disc wheel and so on. Before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can, you can perform at your best. Everyone sweats differently, uh, including both sweat rate and sweat sodium concentration, so your hydration strategy should be individualized to that, and your fueling strategy should also be individualized based on the duration and intensity of exercise or competition. You can use the free online sweat test and the quick carb calculator on precisionfuelandhydration.com to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. And you can book a free one-on-one video consultation to refine your strategy. As a listener of that triathlon show, you can get 15% off your first order of products by using the code TTS22 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Roka. When Roka got started in 2011, uh, the challenge they set out to solve was to create the world's fastest wetsuit, which resulted in what in its current iteration is the Maverick X2 wetsuit. In 2021, they set themselves a different challenge 10 years after inception, which was to take their extremely high standards and the key features of the Maverick X2, but create a very budget-friendly entry-level wetsuit that doesn't compromise those standards and incorporates as much as possible of the key features of their flagship model in it. And that result is the Maverick wetsuit, which at 275 US dollar is an entry-level option price-wise, but in terms of quality and performance, it definitely does not play in the entry-level leagues. And uh, I can confirm this because Roka sent me one of their uh, Maverick wetsuits and I tried it out and it feels really fast. And uh, yeah, I would not believe that that's an entry-level wetsuit just based on how I felt in it. It felt super, super good, super buoyant, and I had great mobility in it as well. Uh, Roka, of course, incorporates their arms of technology in that wetsuit, as in all of their other wetsuits and tri-suits. You can read more about the Maverick on Roka.com, and you can get 20% off your entire Roka order on Roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Michael Lieberson. Welcome back to that Traffle Show, Michael. How are you doing? I'm very well, Michael. You're catching me at a, at a good time. I'm just coming out of COVID, as we talked about in uh, in our pre, you know, before we started recording. And uh, I finally regained the full functionality of my voice. So your timing was excellent for this uh, invitation. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you're on demand and uh, hope that that uh, remains the case for a long time. Uh, <laughs> for listeners that might not have heard uh, you on the previous episode, ep- episodes that you've done or on your own podcast, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about who you are? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, as Michael mentioned, um, I have been on that triathlon show a couple of times. I also, uh, host my own podcast that deals with, uh, you know, interesting and novel things in the endurance sport, uh, 
realm. Uh, it's called the Endurance Innovation Podcast, which, uh, like I said, I host with uh, with another gentleman from Canada, uh, Andrew Buckrell. And um, there we talk to uh, uh, folks who are in the, you know, in the industry who are studying uh, aerodynamics, who are studying heat transfer, who, who do, um, you know, training and, uh, and think about psychology and endurance sport, basically anything that we think can uh, improve the experience of the endurance athlete. Uh, on top of that, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I, I am also a triathlon coach based out of Toronto, Canada. Yeah, and uh, you have done also have a lot of experience with uh, aerodynamic testing, and we'll we'll get to that in a bit. As you mentioned, your podcast deals a lot with the technical side of things. There, for people interested in aerodynamics, for example, or heat transfer, two of the main topics that you mentioned there. Uh, there's no better place to go, I think, than than your podcast and uh, and. You are a source that I go to directly sometimes when I have a question in <laughs> in any of those uh, yes. any of those areas. So uh, we, we have a couple of topics today, and what we'll do is, depending on how much time we take, we might split this episode into or this interview into two episodes. But we'll we'll just see how how long each uh, topic takes. And the first one is a topic that came about actually from one of my athletes, and it's a question of whether to uh, go upgrade from a road bike to a tri bike, basically. So. So we have a couple of things here to discuss and uh, a couple of parameters to take into account. But let's start with just uh, simple basics. Why is it faster in most triathlon races to race on a TT bike rather than a road bike? Well, I think the uh, you hinted at this answer, Michael, when you when you said that we'd be talking about aerodynamics. So there is a in a you know in a nutshell, that's your answer. The na- the answer is of course aerodynamics. Um, and uh, just to put it you know uh, put it fairly simply. On most uh, in most cycling conditions, um, you know, unless you're going up a, a fairly substantial incline, um, the greatest thing that is holding you back as a cyclist from uh, you know increasing your speed or even just holding your speed is aerodynamic drag. Uh, depending on the situation, and uh, obviously depending on the terrain, um, that the percentage that of your power that you're putting into the pedals that is then going into overcoming aerodynamic drag is anywhere from 70 to as high as 80, 85%. Uh, and this is very much dependent on speed, but that's the, that's the range. So if you think about, um, okay, I want to go faster. I want to complete this race faster or the flip side of faster. Um, this is from, uh, I love this quote from Damon Renard, who used to be with Cervelo. And I think he went to Cannondale afterwards is the flip side of faster is easier. So if you don't necessarily want to go faster, but you want to use less energy for the same amount of, uh, you know, for the same speed, um, then being more aerodynamic in this, in which directly affects efficiency in this case, uh, means that you are expending less metabolic energy in getting from, from A to B in your race. So the kind of the very short answer, and I'm sure you'll, you'll come back with a follow up as to why, but the very short answer, uh, is that on a triathlon bike, um, almost everybody is going to be more aerodynamic than a road bike. And why is that? Why is a tri bike? <laughs> why, why do we get better aerodynamically? Yes. Okay. Of course. Um, so it's, uh, it's actually not the bike itself. Um, rather it's not the aerodynamic qualities of the, of the bicycle itself. Now it is definitely true that, um, that even kind of a, a, an entry level triathlon bike is going to be more aerodynamic than even a fairly advanced aero road bike. Um, so if you just put the two side by side in a wind tunnel, the, well, you wouldn't do it side by side, but one after the other in a wind tunnel, the triathlon bike will have a slightly lower aero drag, but that's not the real kicker. The, the reason that triathlon bikes are that much more aerodynamic is because they allow the cyclist 
to assume a more aerodynamic position and to maintain it for a long period of time comfortably. And uh, that's going to become important when I answer one of your follow-up questions. Yeah. But um, go ahead. So, so, so maybe I'm sure that I know that you've done some quantification of this in the past. So can we get on to how much time athletes tend to gain by upgrading from a road bike to a tri bike for maybe if you have numbers for each distance for sprint olympic half and full distance then uh, yeah if you can give some examples to quantify that would be really helpful sure um and uh first of all i'm going to shout out uh sebastian schlurike of aerotune who i believe was a past guest on your show as well he is the source of all of these numbers so sebastian thank you for sharing these with me at the last minute uh so this is where these numbers come from um and uh first i'll cite them in in uh cda values so uh for folks familiar with uh, aerodynamic calculation cda is the kind of the non-dimensional coefficient that uh fits into the aerodynamic formula and uh Um, you know, I'm happy to dive deep into this one, Michael, if you want me to, but suffice to say, you want this number to be as low as possible. The lower the number, the more, um, aerodynamically efficient you are, or the less the aerodynamic drag is, is slowing you down. So in CDA, lower is better. That's, that's what we got to understand. Um, so the CDA, the average CDA of, uh, a road cyclist based on a lot of the tests that the folks at Aerotune have done, and, uh, these are tests also submitted by Aerotune users is 3.0.319. Uh, that's a, uh, that's a road bike. Uh, compare that to a triathlon bike. The number is, uh, 0.232. So that is a, a very non-trivial difference. Um, and then I'll follow up this with, uh, with giving you specific time savings, because sometimes those, na- those numbers are a little bit abstract for, for folks like, you know, yes, there's a big difference. There's a, an objectively big difference between the two numbers, but what does that mean for me as a cyclist? So, um, using myself as an example, because obviously it'll depend on, uh, these time savings are going to depend on, on cyclist speed and power. Um, if we're going to be, uh, you know, roughly, uh, 200 wattish for, um, for, for an Ironman, your time savings be- between road bike and triathlon bike are going to be in the area of 17 minutes. So mm. 17 minutes for an Ironman, which is, you know, quite a big, quite a big amount of time. If you, yeah. if you've ever done one of these. Um, and so as, as we go down, uh, in, as we go down in distance, obviously the time savings are going to go down as well. So roughly speaking, you're, you're looking at eight and a half to nine minutes, um, for a 70.3, four to four to five minutes for an Olympic and about two to two and a half minutes for a sprint. Mm. And uh, let's talk about how power and speed might affect that. So first of all, if we have an athlete that is faster that is really fast and strong on the bike will they save more time or less time and uh, likewise if we have a slower athlete with less power less speed on the bike how does that impact those calculations so this is a really this is a really interesting question and so um if we're talking about uh um the the way that the relationship between power and speed works in terms of aerodynamic drag alone now there are other things that are slowing you down but for the the purposes of this co- uh, conversation we're we're focusing on aero drag um the power required to overcome aerodynamic drag is proportional to the cube of the velocity okay so the faster you go 
it gets harder to overcome aerodynamic drag, which is obvious, but it gets, it gets harder very, very, very quickly. So the advantage for a stronger, faster athlete in, in lowering their aero drag is yes, you will go a little bit faster for the, um, the amount of power that you put into the pedals. Um, but it's, and it, it is going to be, it's, it's going to be significant, but because those folks are actually spending less time on the course, the absolute time saved by a slower athlete, by someone who's putting out less power may actually be larger just because they're out there for longer, right? So if you're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, elite males, uh, in, in an, you know, in an Ironman circuit going, what are, we, what are, what are they doing now? Like they're, they're under four hours. They're, they're right? under four hours on a really fast yeah. course or close, very close exactly. to four hours anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so under four hours, whereas, you know, an average age grouper on the same course or maybe like a, you know, kind of like a middle of the pack person might be six or more hours on that same course. So mm-hmm. they just have, there's just a lot more opportunity for saving in terms of, in terms of net minutes, uh, for a slower person. So this is why aerodynamics, uh, you know, paying attention to aerodynamics is something that's, that's very useful to, to I would say folks are all along the spectrum of speed because if you're just if you're one of those people who is trying to make the cutoff um you know for 16 17 hours depending where you're racing if you're racing an Ironman race um you know 20 minutes may very well be that that difference between making your cutoff and not making the cutoff and if you are at the pointy end where you're going around you know at, at around 4 hours to finish the bike then then you could be you, you'd still be saving probably close to 15 minutes if you were i mean it's a very big difference between a road bike and a tri bike we're not talking about like aero optimization here this is sort of a no brainer especially if you're you know trying to win um you you might be saving 15 minutes which is in let's say in the pro field a huge margin yeah yeah uh what about uh fitting your road bike with tt bar so you can kind of get into a more aerodynamic position yeah this is definitely impossible and uh it's certainly you know you see it on uh you know, the ITU circuit, right? They use the shorty bars and they're, they, they use them to great effect. And, uh, uh, it's, it's definitely possible. Um, and remember what I said earlier that the bikes themselves aren't necessarily much less aerodynamic. The road bikes themselves aren't necessarily much less aerodynamics than triathlon bikes. The real difference here is comfort. So, um, the, the triathlon bikes are designed kind of ground up to be comfortable in that race position, um, for long periods of time. Um, road bikes are designed to be comfortable in that specific race position for a long period of time. Now adding aero bars. So now that you're, you're basically, you're going from using your hands as the contact point on the bar to using your elbows or your forearms as the contact point on the bar. And it's, uh, the, the, if you can imagine the distance between saddle to bar is now being made up by much less of your body if it if you're if you're losing the whole forearm as your as part of your reach if you if you understand what I'm saying Michael. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, road bikes tend to be a lot longer than triathlon bikes and uh, and having to make up that reach with uh, with an adjustment with pushing the saddle forward and then bringing perhaps bringing the arm cups back on the um, on the extensions it is a hundred percent doable I would say it's probably not optimal for longer races that's why you know you see you see folks be very successful at the shorter races especially in the ITU series with this setup but you don't see a lot of high performance folks racing this way um in uh in a long course the only exception of course was taylor nib when she crushed i think i forget what race it was but she had by far the she she ran away with the bike split uh and she was on a road bike with extensions but that is the exception and not the rule and then recently she switched to to a a full-on tt bike 
because again, it's just, it's not necessarily that you cannot achieve the same kind of aerodynamic position on a road bike with extensions. It's just, it's much harder to be comfortable in that position, given the inherent geom- geometry differences between a road bike and a, and a tri bike. Yeah. And, and also in the example of Taylor Nib, it, she still was only doing half distance races yes. in that setup. It might be a different story to do a full Ironman in that setup. Totally agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, then, so if an athlete decides to go for uh, an upgrade and go for a TT bike, what do you think are the most important considerations that they should keep in mind when it comes to selecting the right bike? I love this question because I think uh, there's so much, uh, you know, marketing, uh, let's say, information out there uh, where everyone's claiming that their their triathlon superbike is by is the absolute fastest thing and you'll see you know basically it's funny because you'll see the same bikes compared against each other and depending on who is doing the comparison the results are going to be different so there's definitely some uh some you know uh, let's say cherry picking of the data that's happening from the manufacturers um but one thing that i will say is that in terms of just raw aerodynamic performance frames have converged so there is not a world of difference between a good a frame from one manufacturer to the next. So there's really not a strong case to be made, I would say, from, you know, I'm just throwing up names from like picking a Trek versus a Cervelo versus, you know, a Quintana Roo or, or any, other, any other excellent manufacturer out there. Um, so what I would say is make sure that the bike that you're purchasing has an excellent uh, front end. And this is like the, the cockpit of the bike, um, the, uh, the the bar and extension system. And what I would consider excellent would be that it is very easy to adjust and it has a broad range of adjustment. Because one of the most important things, of course, is that the bike fits you, right? So if you're considering, uh, you know, when you, if you're considering buying one, you really do, do your homework and make sure that what you're purchasing is going to fit because there's nothing worse than you know, it not fitting. Um, and unlike a road bike, there are fewer, it's harder to, to, it's harder to make a poorly fitting triathlon bike work than it is to make a poorly fitting road bike work. So make sure it fits first of all. And then whatever it is that you're buying, I would say if you, you know, if you, I would totally support a decision of getting a lower end frame with a higher end front end, maybe like a, a an aftermarket um, front end in order to make it adjustable and aerodynamic. Because um, going back to what I said earlier about bike, about rider position being super important to the, you know, the end aerodynamic result, nothing affects that um, aerodynamic position more than your interaction with the front end of the bike. So make having that front end be extremely adjustable and easy to adjust is is a huge uh, is a huge win for anyone who is interested in in you know becoming as aerodynamic as they can possibly be mm. do you have any examples of uh, bikes that come with uh, what you would consider a good front and adjustable front end or and also aftermarket front ends if people want to to mm-hmm. upgrade and maybe maybe go for cheaper frame and and buy the front end separately yeah, um, I will say that I have no affiliation with any of these folks that I'm talking about right now. But uh, let me give you an example of a really bad front end first. Um, and this isn't because of this is just because this this bike is amazing in a million different ways. But it's it's old and this wasn't thought of too much, I guess back in the day. But the the original Cervelo P5, it's still one of the fastest bikes out there in the in the tunnel, and it's uh, it's a phenomenal bike by all accounts. But adjusting the front end of that bike is 
impossible. It is a, it is such a nightmare because of the way the, the cables are routed. And it was a hydraulic uh, rim brake bike, one of the only ones, I think, in triathlon. Um, and everything is routed through the headset. So basically, if you want to make any stack changes on that bike, so that's height changes, you basically have to pull the thing apart and have a mechanic reassemble it for you. So that's that would be the the spectrum of the least adjustable, hardest to work on bikes. If I if if I'm doing an aero test on someone with a P5, I, I really have to manage my expectations or manage their expectations. Say like, this is, here's what we can touch in the field and here's what we won't be able to do. On the flip side, you can, you can take the new P5 and it has a very, very good adjustability uh, from the front end perspective. So this is both the, the, the P, used to be the P5X, now the PX from Cervelo. Um, or their or their P5 time trial frame, they have a monopost design for for adjusting stack. Again, stack being the height, uh, it's it's quite easy to do. I've worked on the the P5X before. It is very user friendly, very easy to adjust. Um, similar similar bikes. The new Ventum, uh, I believe, has a similar setup. We've uh, we've adjusted it when we were working with Cody Beals. Uh, it's not quite as slick as the Cervelo, but it still does the job quite well. Um, after market wise, um, the, uh, the tri-rig alpha one bar is very easy to work with. I've worked with that bar as well. Um, they've done, they've done a lot of good engineering on the, on the adjustability side of that bar. So there's lots of options and the, and way more in the last, I would say four or five years when manufacturers, both OE, uh, bike makers, as well as, you know, folks like tri-rig folks who are just making components, they're paying a lot more attention to this, uh, this element because it is critically important and they're starting to understand it. And they're, they're more and more manufacturers, even some of the traditional folks like, uh, like profile who are, who are paying attention and creating really good, smart products. So most stuff on the market these days is going to be actually quite good. It's, it's, it's a good time to, well, it's maybe not a good time to buy a bike because you can't get components, but from a, <laughs> from an engineering perspective, there's some really, really well thought out, um, front ends out there. It's also very expensive. Uh, I've, I've been looking at prices <laughs> recently compared to, I don't know, three years ago when I bought my, my bike. And uh, yeah, it's the inflation is high in the cycling world. Let's put it yeah. that way. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that's great. Great information. Is, are there any other considerations uh, to keep in mind? For example, what, what's your take on uh, inter- integration of hydration mm. and, and nutrition and so on? Is that something that you would consider important? Yeah, actually, that's a, that's an excellent point, and this is something that when I talk about this to to other folks too, this is uh, this is this is a point that I try to drive across. Um, w- even though you know, sort of n- quote unquote naked bikes are have converged in terms of the, the aerodynamics. By naked, I mean without stuff strapped onto them. Um, it does make sense to have some integration where the uh, you know where the where your ability to carry your tools, your hydration, your nutrition are not an afterthought to the bike where they were for, you know, all the years before, I would say maybe 10 years ago where you had to, you know, you saw people uh, taping gels to their top tubes and, uh, and, uh, you know, had Jersey pockets stuffed with, with things that are poking out and not being very aero friendly. Um, these days you can definitely get a bike where you can do an Ironman without having anything in a Jersey pocket, without having any bottles in the wind, without having any, you know, any tools, you know, again, duct tape to the back of your seat where everything is thought out and, and hidden from the wind. Uh, I know some manufacturers, uh, you know, some, some, some people do this better than others. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a good idea, um, to 
put actually put your hands on this integration to actually go and try to access one of the storage boxes, let's say in the frame above the bottom bracket, for example, where a lot of folks are putting toolkits, right? So can you easily access this toolkit? Is it big enough to store all the things you need? If you're writing tubeless, you maybe you maybe need a tube, maybe you don't need a tube. Or if you're, you know, if you're writing tubular still, which I guess a few people still are, can you stuff a whole tubular tire in this in this setup? So it's important to make sure that that the way that you want to ride um, and the things you want to carry work with the the in- level of integration that you um, that your bike offers. Uh, same goes for bottles. Like, how many bottles are you planning on carrying? And I know that's a follow up question for you uh, down the line, Michael. But how many bottles do you want to carry uh, on this bike versus you know how many do you want to access from from uh, um, the the aid stations? So how many bottles will this bike comfortably hold for you? And is that enough for your fuel and uh, and nutrition? setup so for sure uh, an important consideration and this is where kind of where it might make sense to spend a little bit more on a frame because generally the more expensive frames do have a little bit more of this integration but the integration also has to work for you as the athlete yeah yeah no that makes sense then and uh yeah i think that the the bottle question is an interesting one because we we know from a lot of testing that when you put a bottle uh on uh, on the bike on the frame we install a bottle cage on the frame and we put a bottle in there especially if it's a non-aero bottle but even aero bottles we do get a a penalty there which is an aero mm-hmm. penalty which is not necessarily the case depending on where we put it if we put it between the arms it might be a wash or even potentially an advantage in some cases and uh, behind the saddle as well depending on the angle of it we, we might mm-hmm. have the same issue so so yeah just thinking about these things and how how much hydration you need to carry and how much you and and nutrition of course and tools and how and how you will be able to manage that without necessarily causing additional aero penalties uh, which in the past you were basically forced to no no matter how mm-hmm. you tried that's 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 an important consideration i i, I think as well I agree, especially the the bottle. So, I mean, putting a bottle between the aero bars is is a no brainer. It's it's usually fairly straightforward, especially with traditional round aero bar extensions. Um, a lot of modern um, front end designers are building in you know bosses for cages directly onto say the bridge between the extensions or something like that. Um, the, the frames on the bottle, oh, sorry, bottles on the frame. Um, manufacturers are thinking about and usually not usually but often with modern bikes they will sell you their own aero bottle that that integrates very neatly into the frame now aero bottles are they you you pay a penalty for sure you know like if you take like the elite chrono bottle it's only i think 200 or 250 milliliters of capacity versus you know a 600 or 750 milliliter round bottle so you're 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 losing a lot of capacity there sure it's more aerodynamic but you have to think about like what am i going to put in there is this going to be a a, you know nutrition storage or is it actually going to be fluids it's not really that much room for fluids um so things of that you know again going back to what i said earlier about the the setup has to make sense for you and uh, how what your race nutrition plan is um, but you bring up the good point of uh, of behind the saddle. Uh, the if a bike has if a bike manufacturer has thought about how this bottle is going to sit um, and going to be attached, that is that is a win because there are times. Well, because historically these bottles were attached to um, uh, saddle rails. 
And sometimes it's not possible to set up the, the, the exact setup you want and attach it to saddle rails because saddle rails on different saddles are have slightly different angles. And also, if you're running a saddle very far forward, it, part of the seat post may occlude your preferred mounting of the rear cage, you know, behind the bottle cage. Um, so it's so if a bike manufacturer has thought about this and has installed a, an easy means for you to mount a saddle behind, oh, sorry, excuse me, a bottle behind your saddle, that I would say is a win. That's that would be a tick in in favor of that particular uh, make and model. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, so another question about road versus tri bike is: Is there a point when you're racing, let's say, a very hilly or even mountainous course? I'm thinking about something like Ironman Lanzarote, which has 2,400 mm-hmm. meters of gain, or Ironman 17.3 Andorra, which has 2,000 meters of gain in a half Ironman. Uh, is there a point uh, at which you should uh, race your road bike rather than your TT bike because there's so much climbing that the aero penalty is not going to outweigh uh, the, the climbing benefits potentially of, of the road bike and descending, descending as, as well? Mm-hmm. So this is a really complicated question because it's it, it's going to come with a lot of it depends. So if you are uh, so one thing I'll, I'll kind of I'll kind of give my my uh, my stock answer to this. If you look at at Lanzarote and you look at the folks who are doing well there, they're all on triathlon bikes, right? They're all riding you know TT tri bikes. Um, so they've they've done their math. Their coaches have done their math, and they've they've gone triathlon bike. And that's that's not necessarily. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, immediately fall back to that and say that's you know case closed. But that is a strong indicator for me that that's the way to go. Um, and here's the other point I'll make. So obviously Lanzarote has much more um, much more elevation than the average course, but it is you know you're still you know what what, what goes up still comes down. So you are still gaining the um, whatever you lose on the way up, you're still partially gaining it on the way down in terms of aerodynamic drag. Um, and I actually ran the numbers. Uh, I did a little quick simulation for for Lanzarote specifically for some. So for someone my height and my weight rather uh, more so than my height height doesn't really matter my weight. Um, if I went from a triathlon bike to a road bike, and if we're purely looking at weight savings, um, you, I might save just on my setup road versus try, I might save two kilos. Okay. So like a heavy, um, a heavy tri bike versus a, a very, you know, light, fairly light road bike. I might be looking at a two kilo difference. Um, for me, two kilos would add one minute, 40 seconds to my time at Lanzarote. Okay, so le- a little bit less than two minute penalty to go with the heavier uh, tri bike. But if you think back to what I was saying earlier about how much time I could save on a tri bike, that was seventeen minutes. Hmm. Okay, now obviously there are there are some nuances here because I'm not going to be in the arrow position the whole time. The whole the, the seventeen minute number was you're in arrow the whole time on the on the tri bike, and you are in you know a good but you know on your hoods position uh in uh on that road bike so obviously i'm going to be probably climbing on my hoods and i'm going to be descending on my hoods and i'm going to be living on my hoods if i was on a road bike for the most part but on the tri bike if i was climbing there is a time that i'm going to sit up to climb and i, I noticed that's a follow-up question as well uh so the so this is not a fair comparison it wouldn't be a 17 minute delta for for aerodynamic sakes on that course, but I would be willing to bet. And as I said, as, as is evidenced by all the, you know, the smart fast people that are on that course, that the aerodynamic wins, at least on Lanzarote for a tri bike far outweigh the weight penalty. Yeah. Let's say even in an extreme case where you would spend just one third of the time 
in in the bars you would still potentially look at gaining six minutes of mm-hmm. in the aerodynamic benefits uh, instead of the 17 minutes or so- something something like that and and that would outweigh the uh, one minute 40 that you said that you would gain weight wise from uh, from going to the road bike so so that yeah. that makes sense and and i'm glad you say that because i've, I've done that 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 kind of calculus recently for a different race for for central three marbella and, and came to the same conclusion <laughs> that it makes sense yeah um, it does. I mean, the other consideration is is handling, right? So weight is not the only consideration. So there, the road bikes are designed to descend quickly, um, and uh, for you know, for for folks who you know, for um, folks who are maybe less uh, less comfortable at descending. But I would argue that those folks might be less comfortable descending on, regardless of the bike that they ride. Um, and maybe this is this goes back to your question about. Um, uh, about considerations for for a tri bike, if you are doing a very technical course with technical descents, then I would say disc brakes are a big advantage um, because they are they do you know uh, kind of inspire confidence if you know what you're doing on a, on a technical descent course. But then again, mo- mo- all almost all with maybe a couple of exceptions, modern triathlon bikes are disc brake enabled. Um, so that's uh, that for, yeah, again, unless you're buying used, that's, that's kind of a moot point as well. So for, for descending, yes, a, a tri bike is not going to descend quite as well as a, as a road bike. But if for someone who is a, a confident descender, that's probably also not going to make a massive difference either. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's another reason or a reason that i think that something like lanzarote or marbella or courses like that they are made for tri bikes because the descents there are not very technical i haven't mm. raced them but that's that's my my understanding uh, whereas something like andorra i think is a different ball game and that's where i think from what i know about the course again not having ridden it myself but i think i would go for a road bike on that course hmm. not just because of the amount of climbing which is quite extreme with 2000 meters in in a half distance race yeah, but because of the descending which is uh which is much more technical than those aforementioned courses mm-hmm. and that's maybe a course where you you do want to do a road bike with extensions you know so then you kind of get you know you can spend a little bit of time on those aero extensions when when the course permits it and you do get that aero advantage and uh but you're not there for a long time so you're sort of you're offsetting the the disadvantage of road bike with extensions being lack of comfort um with the fact that you're not on there for very long because you gonna be climbing and descending not in those extensions and maybe that's the optimal setup for a race like that yeah yeah that makes sense so, so if you're on a course, well, it doesn't even have to be an extremely hilly course, but a lot of courses have have some amount of climbing in them, and mm-hmm. uh, depending on the the duration and uh, the power, the target power you have, uh, there will come points in most courses where your speed slows down when you're climbing. Uh, at below what speed do you think it makes sense to sit up, get out of the aero bars uh, when when you're on the TT bike and uh, and you start to climb and the speed starts to come down? Yeah, well, here's <laughs> let, let's you know cue the return of the it depends statement, call the qualified statement. Uh, so, uh, real real briefly, um, obviously, when you're an aero, when you're on the skis and the uh, on the extensions, uh, you're more aerodynamic. When you're sitting up, you're less aerodynamic. So, what's the point of sitting up, right? So, I can think of two really important uh, ones for for sitting up. First of all, just about everybody is going to produce a little bit more power when they're sitting up. Um, and I'll definitely get into that a little bit more. And then the other one, I think, especially in long races, it's a good idea to change your position from time to time, just to give your body a little bit of a break. And I'm not, I'm not advocating this for long periods of time, but almost as a, almost as a proactive stretch. 
Um, so sitting up sometimes just, you know, places different strains on your, on your muscles because your joint angles change. Well, your hip angle is, is the primary one that changes and the strain on the muscles changes. So I think there's, those are the two, um, uh, those are the two pros of sitting up, uh, occasionally, especially when you you need to climb. Um, how much power do you gain when you're sitting up? Now, this really depends on what sort of training you're doing. Like if you're, if you're Dan Bigham, who, uh, when he was last on our show talked about when he's training for, you know, his track season or his time trialing season, uh, he basically r- does almost all of his riding, even his like commutes in, in the TT position, because he wants to get as hum- as comfortable in that position as humanly possible. And the idea there is to, is to make that gap between sitting up and being an arrow as small as possible in terms of what can you comfortably hold in terms of, in terms of wattage. Now, um, from my experience of myself and with folks I coach, um, you can probably comfortably get that down to about 5%, right? So let's say if you're, if we're, if we're talking about, um, you know, power that you can hold at, uh, at FTP or, you know, however you want to define FTP, that's a whole other thing. Um, it's, it's roughly a 5% difference for folks who are fairly well adapted. For some people, it might even be less. So if you're gaining 5% on your, on, on, uh, on that wattage, or let's or put another way for the same heart rate, you can produce 5% more wattage, um, which is roughly the case, uh, Sitting up gives you a little bit of a boost in terms of power, but it doesn't give you a massive boost in terms of power. So uh, all of this to say that my advice is you kind of want to stay in arrow until you're going quite, quite slowly, unless you need to to do a stretch. So if we're talking about straight up, just the 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 benefits of the extra power gained, I would say you'd want to be going well below 20 kilometers an hour. So maybe around, you know, 17, 18 kilometers an hour as if you want me to, you know, put a number on it um, before you before the uh, the winds that you get from sitting up uh, outweigh the aerodynamic penalty of doing that mm, yeah that's that's quite quite low. quite low yeah yeah but again there's there's the whole there's the more subjective value of of changing your position changing what you're doing because especially in in, in an ironman race you're you're in that in that position for so so long that you know any excuse to to change it i think is is useful um especially if it's if it, if you're not going to be uh sitting up for for very long yeah no that's that's absolutely true and i think uh many of us have been out on a long ride when we when we start thinking, where is that damn hill that that I'm coming towards? Because we just want to get out of position and uh, and stretch a little totally. bit. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, are there any other considerations for hilly courses? Um, for example, and now we're perhaps going back to the the questions regarding courses like Lanzarote, Andorra, and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. Racing with a disc wheel when is the extra weight not worth it compared to the aerodynamic gains? Also, things like carrying less hydration on the bike and relying more on aid stations. Are there any things that you would consider? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So uh, on the subject of disc wheels, I'm a, I'm a very pro disc wheel. Uh, the In the right conditions, the, the kind of the, the benefit of a disc wheel is just tremendous. It, it can... Um, it can actually in the in the right condition and by the right conditions i mean the right wind conditions um you can get into situations without even very strong winds that are that are coming in from the side um where uh, a disc wheel will actually uh create negative drag or or propul- or propulsive force mm. so at you know depending on the disc somewhere around i think even as low as like 
uh, I should I should have looked at my charts, but some as low as like ten or fifteen ten or fifteen degrees of yaw. So that's you know the the perceived angle of the wind hitting the rider. You might be getting so you might be getting into situations where you're actually getting thrust from that wheel. So 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 listeners, that's actually. Uh, you, the wheel is actually helping you move forward. It's actually behaving like a sail on a sailboat and providing thrust to to you. So I'm a big, big, big fan of disc wheels. And I cannot think, unless it's a net uphill course, um, which are very few uh, and far between, I can't think of one actually uh, in triathlon, I would wear, I would wear, I would run a disc wheel every single time that I'm allowed to do so um, with the, you know, with the obvious caveat that you have to be comfortable riding that disc wheel. Now I know folks who rent disc wheels for races and uh, I would be careful doing that if you've never ridden a disc wheel or you haven't ridden a disc wheel in the conditions of the race, because um uh, while it doesn't add to the steering torque, right? So because obviously it's in the back and not in the front, so it's not affecting how your how your bars behave. Uh, that extra surface area on the side of you know U plus bicycle creates that sailing effect, which means that any side wind will try to move you in in the direction that is blowing, uh, and it can be a very disconcerting feeling unless until you're used to it. But once you're used to it, I think it's it's brilliant and it's it's fairly easy to handle. Um, again, uh, once, once you're used to it, but I would say you'd want to run a disc on absolutely every race where the winds are, you know, predictable and you, you, you're comfortable handling the disc. And of course it's allowed where like in, in Kona famously discs are not allowed. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I, and I think that it's, it's a question that I get, uh, every, every now and then, like the, the winds for this race is look, are looking like they will be quite strong. Should I skip my disc wheel? And, and I would always go for no keep the disc wheel like you're just mm-hmm. going to benefit more of course that kind of assumes that you have trained trained on it but when you when you're used to it it i i don't think i don't, I don't think the disc wheel handles any more uh, that it's any more difficult to handle the bike with a disc wheel than with just a deep section training wheel when when you have done a bit of training on it so mm-hmm. yeah i would agree with with that completely and regarding I net agree. uphill courses uh i think potentially alp duess long distance traffic uh, might okay. be net uphill but i'm not entirely sure about that so uh, mm-hmm. yeah that's but yeah good point uh about that and uh, what uh, about the, hydra- the- uh, hydration question yeah, yeah. Uh, so hydration, I would say, it, again, it depends on rider skill and how comfortable you are uh, grabbing things from aid stations. I am a fan of of running sort of, you know, not I wouldn't say minimal hydration, but I would say you you want to have sort of you want to have capacity for one oopsie, you know. So if you have if you miss one uh, aid station for whatever reason, uh, you're not paying attention, or you drop a bottle, that you're not doomed because obviously, and you know, I think you've covered this in, in great detail, Michael, that hydration nutrition on on long courses is uh critically important uh you don't want to ruin your day by trying to optimize aerodynamics a little bit or trying to optimize your weight a little bit um so my kind of my rule is i want to have one bottle uh one sort of spare bottle that if i do miss an aid station i'm I'm not cooked um but generally i'll try to run minimal you know having said that i'll run minimal hydration um regardless of actually whether or not it's a big uphill or course or not because even uh uh, even a flat course, uh, if you're running, for example, the obvious example is if you're running a bottle on your uh, on your down tube, right, the, the front slope tube of your bicycle, that is a very bad place to put a round bottle. That's probably the worst. And so, if you're, you know, if your hydration 
strategy demands that you run a bottle there. Um, maybe try to figure out a way that you can avoid ru- running a bottle on the on the down tube because uh, that will definitely save you a lot, whether or not you're climbing or just going in a, on a flat course just because of the arrow penalty. Um, and uh, again, that comes down to practice, right? Like practice those handoffs at, uh, at the aid station so that you can reliably grab a bottle and, uh, and, you know, minimize your risks uh, of dropping it. And then again, that gives you the opportunity to stretch, right? So that if your aid stations are roughly every, every 20, 30 kilometers on most courses, um, that should be, that's generally, um, you know, a, a good time to, to sit up for 30 seconds, slow down a little bit, grab that bottle and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that those are, those are excellent points. And, and also, even if you don't have to run a bottle on the down tube, Consider, for example, how long it might take you to grab a bottle from behind the saddle, drink, yep. and put it back. How, how is is that really that much more efficient than than slowing down a little bit and grabbing a bottle from an aid station? Not yep. not necessarily. So so yeah, that, that, those are just things to things to consider with with that as well. Totally agree. Right. So so let's start to wrap up this topic. Can you give a final summary and uh, any tips that we might have left out or that you want to repeat regarding road versus triathlon bikes? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, so if, uh, you know, if, if you're stuck in an N1, N plus one loop and you, you, you like buying more bikes, um, and your focus is triathlon, uh, uh, triathlon bike is always a really good idea, right? There's just, there's just so many advantages to, uh, uh, to having the right fitting, easily adjustable triathlon bike versus a road bike uh, when you're doing a, a non-drafting race that it's just, there are, it's very hard to find. You'd have to really work hard to find reasons not to do it. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, the point of road bike with extensions can be done, uh, works well, quite well, I think sometimes in short races, uh, not so well in very long races, um, aerodynamics trumps weight in a, in a major way. So I wouldn't worry too much about the weight of your, of your whole package and, and pay more attention to, uh, to the aerodynamics of the setup. Um, and even in, uh, in very uphill races, I, I still think that holds. And then finally, just practice what you're doing. And I, this is not new. This isn't obviously specific to getting as aerodynamic a setup as possible, but practice, 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 um, practice grabbing those bottles, practice your setup, practice holding that position. If you actually have the opportunity to get some aerodynamic testing done, um, and you've, you know, you've found your optimal position, uh, that, your you know it behooves you to learn to keep that position for the duration of the race so it's it's something that you can get super slippery but if it's incredibly uncomfortable and then you're not gonna be able to hold it then that doesn't really make uh, you know it's not gonna it's not gonna get you to the finish line any faster so practice is a is a really big one too yeah excellent points and uh we have been going for a while so let's uh do the rec- rapid fire questions here and i'll break this part out in in a separate episode from our next topic so the first rapid fire question is what's your favorite book or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports uh so this this changes because uh you know it's it there's so many excellent resources uh so for for this uh this edition michael uh i will cite collie moore um both on his instagram channel um, where he does amas about training uh every weekend as well as his uh really really good um empirical cycling podcast and i believe he was a guest on your show in the past yep. as well yeah yep and uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally 
Um, I think understanding uh, and really almost daily thinking about what what I have control over and what I have less control or no control over and and really putting uh, putting my decisions and putting my energy into the things that I can control and uh, and really practicing hard not dwelling on things I cannot control uh, it's <laughs> it's a work in progress I'm still not there yet for sure but it's it's something that has given me a lot of um, over time uh, quite a bit of mental and kind of emotional, uh, you know, calm and, and well-being uh, following that strategy. Mm, that's really helpful and not something that has been mentioned before. So, uh, so oh, yeah, good, good one. <laughs> and uh, finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Um, so this is a. I'll, I'll shout out another guest who's who's been on both of our uh, both of our shows, uh, Bjorn Kafka of Aerotune, um, and uh, I think he's one of the. And what I really like about Bjorn is that uh, you know he's uh, he he coaches some very high level athletes. He's developing some pretty sort of I don't know cutting edge stuff for for Aerotune on their metabolic models, um, but at the same time he is incredibly generous with his uh, with his knowledge and his time. He's not one of these people that uh, that says no. This is my proprietary special sauce and i will not tell anyone about it he is super willing to share what he knows and uh in in my my experience with him has gone above and beyond and given me essentially like free world you know top top level advice for my own training and uh yeah i mean uh it'd be that's that's who i try to emulate in in my own coaching practice yeah and no, i couldn't agree more bjorn is uh, an absolutely fantastic guy and uh finally tell the listeners where they can find you and your podcast yeah. Um, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the offer to plug, Michael. So, endurance innovation, as I as I said earlier in the show, is our is our podcast. We are uh, almost in at the end of year three of our uh, podcasting journey, Andrew and myself, and uh, uh, it's available well anywhere you get your podcasts. Just look for endurance innovation, and we're also on Instagram under endurance innovation. Uh, but mostly, what I put up there is just um, notifications of new episodes. Yeah. And um, listeners, I, I'm uh, a listener of Endurance Innovation and they have some great guests and, uh, and great topics. So definitely worth checking it out. And yeah, and keep up the good work, Michael and Andrew as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we have links to uh, Michael's website as well as the Endurance Innovation Podcast and Instagram. I'll also link to a road bike versus tri bike episode that uh, Michael and Andrew did on the Endurance Innovation Podcast uh, quite a few years ago and uh, a couple of Q&A episodes that I have done myself on the topic. Uh, but I will say that I do think that we covered this topic uh in full we we didn't miss out or leave out anything so so i'm including most of these episodes mostly for completion really uh and uh, yeah there may be some some details that we didn't discuss that you might find in these episodes but uh, i'm not saying that you have to go and listen to them or anything because i do think that we we discussed most of the aspects of road bike versus tri bikes in this particular episode uh, Michael will be back next week and we will discuss aerodynamic testing including both sensor-based and sensorless systems so stay tuned for that and if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan uh, we have helped athletes of all different levels from beginners just getting into triathlon to athletes uh, that want to race professionally or are racing professionally. And we would love to uh, discuss with you if we can help you on your triathlon journey. You can find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com. 
Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs, and book a free video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of, of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, streamskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you get on roca.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roca order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.